Welcome, everybody, to Tokens of Wisdom. I'm your host, Dave Rothschild, a partner at Cole Freeman & Mallon, a boutique law firm based in San Francisco with one of the leading private fund practices on the West Coast. Before we dive into the episode, like always, please listen to the disclaimer at the end of the show. Nothing I say here is legal investment or tax advice. Hello, Tokens of Wisdom listeners. Well, if you subscribe to SEC News Alerts like me, then one, I pity you, and two, you heard that the agency released long-anticipated new rules this week that apply to private fund advisors. I know what you're thinking. Ooh, boy, there's nothing more exciting than new SEC rules. You're probably like me and got up early to watch the riveting live stream from D.C. last Wednesday as the SEC commissioners voted, predictably along party lines like everything else in America, to adopt the new rule. No? Okay, now I really pity you. In all seriousness, the rule was originally proposed in February 2022, and the proposal was a doozy. Kudos to the denizens of industry participants that submitted comments highlighting some of the proposal's most extreme unintended consequences, because the final rule pairs back some of the most overreaching aspects of the proposal. That said, the final rule still has far-reaching impacts that will alter how pretty much all private fund advisors do business. So buckle up, folks, for an abbreviated Tokens of Wisdom-style ride through 660 pages that's right, 660 pages of SEC rulemaking. This rule has so many nuances and sub-rules that I had to think really hard about how to break it up into nuggets of palatable size to keep you awake long enough for the full summary. Here's how I'm going to do it. First, I'll summarize the rules that apply to registered investment advisors only. Second, we'll go through the provisions that apply to all private fund advisors. Third, we'll discuss the compliance dates. When do I need to comply with these new rules? And some limited grandfathering or legacying provisions for existing arrangements. Fourth and finally, I'll share my two cents on the logic and necessity of these new rules. Preview, I think they're illogical and unnecessary for the most part. Also, before we start, I'm going to quickly note a couple things. None of these rules apply to non-U.S. funds of non-U.S. investment advisors, whether registered or not. So if you're a new Tokens of Wisdom listener hooked after my last episode about non-U.S. advisors, feel free to stop listening now. Hooray for you. Second, like I said earlier, this rule is 660 pages long, and I'm going to summarize pieces of it in about 15 minutes. Obviously, I am leaving out a ton of nuance. I know you all love my legal disclaimer at the end of these episodes, but seriously, if you have questions about how this rule applies to your specific situation, call your lawyer or your compliance consultant. Okay, you ready? Yeah, me neither. But here we go anyway. Part one. Here are the provisions of the new rule that apply to registered investment advisors only. First, there's a new quarterly statement rule. RIAs have to deliver a quarterly statement to investors in the private funds they manage within 45 days at the end of the first three quarters and within 90 days at the end of the fourth quarter. Those periods are extended for fund-to-funds advisors. For new funds, the obligation begins after their second full quarter of operating results. So what does the statement need to include? It needs to include a clear breakdown of fees and compensation paid to the advisor and its related persons by the fund. A clear breakdown of all expenses borne by the fund, broken out by specific categories. A clear breakdown of any offsets, rebates, or waivers that are carried forward to future periods, and a clear breakdown of any compensation paid by fund portfolio companies to the advisor. These fee and expense summaries need to be in a table format, they need to clearly disclose the calculation methods, and they need to cross-reference specific sections of a fund's offering documents that permit the fund to pay that fee, expense, or use that calculation method. The quarterly statement also needs to include detailed performance reporting, which differs depending on type of fund. The requirements are different for liquid hedge-style funds versus illiquid venture capital or private equity-style funds. Let's take a little pause here to note that these requirements are not identical to the requirements under the marketing rule when you're showing 
showing performance in advertisements. So if you're going to use these statements in advertisements, i.e. you want to show them to prospective investors as well, then the marketing rule will also apply to you. And you're probably going to have to tweak them a little bit. Second requirement for registered investment advisors is an annual audit. All funds that they manage need to get an audit every year by a PCAOB registered accountant. And the audited financial statements need to be distributed to fund investors within 120 days of year end. Now, most RIAs do this already anyway to comply with the custody rule. And unlike some other provisions of this new private fund advisor rule that we're going to talk about in a little bit, the audit requirements were specifically tailored to conform to the custody rule requirements. So if you're getting a custody rule compliant audit, you're probably in compliance with this new provision as well. For the minority of private fund advisors that comply with the custody rule by getting a surprise examination, surprise, you can't do that anymore. Third piece applicable to registered investment advisors is that they are prohibited from conducting advisor-led secondaries without getting an independent fairness opinion or valuation opinion and providing other disclosures to investors. Okay, that was a real quick summary of the provisions that apply only to registered investment advisors. And now we're going to dive into the fun stuff that applies to everyone. Part two, provisions that apply to all private fund advisors. First, there are restrictions, what I'm going to call the thou shalt not rules. And then there are preferential treatment rules. As we'll dive into, you can get around the restrictions and the thou shalt not rules either by providing investors with advance notice, after the fact notice, or getting investor consent. So here we go. The thou shalt not rules. These are the restrictions that apply to advisors to private funds, whether registered or not. And like I said before, I'm going to break these down into the further sub buckets. So the first sub bucket is thou shalt not do the following unless you give investors advance notice. And the only provision that falls under that bucket is allocating fees and expenses related to a portfolio investment in a non-pro rata fashion among the funds that invest in it. So if you have three fund vehicles and they all take a position in a specific underlying investment, then you need to allocate fees and expenses related to that investment pro rata among the fund vehicles, unless you determine that a non-pro rata allocation is, quote, fair and equitable, unquote, and you disclose in advance to the fund investors that you're allocating non-pro rata and why that non-pro rata allocation is fair and equitable. Second subcategory of thou shalt not rules are those that you can't do unless you provide investors with notice after the fact. So the first such restriction is charging the fund for the advisor's regular or compliance expenses. You're only allowed to do this if you provide investors with after-the-fact disclosure, i.e. you need to send them a statement within 45 days of the end of the quarter disclosing exactly what advisor regulatory and compliance expenses were borne by the fund. Now, of course, your fund documents have to already disclose that advisors' compliance and regulatory expenses will be borne by the fund, but let's put that aside for now. If you're a registered investment advisor, you might be thinking, hey, you just told me about this quarterly statement requirement where I have to send investors a quarterly statement detailing all the expenses borne by the fund. So if I'm an RIA, this sounds like it'll be easy to comply with. It's just a subset of expenses borne by the fund. It's already going to be on the quarterly statement anyway. That is accurate. However, the timing is not quite identical. For the quarterly statement rule for RIAs, the first three quarters, you have to send that statement within 45 days a quarter end, but the fourth quarter, you have to send it within 90 days. For this specific disclosure of advisor regulatory and compliance expenses, you have to send it within 45 days of the end of each quarter. There's no extension in the final quarter. So if you're sending your end-of-year quarterly statement as an RIA within the time frame required by the quarterly statement rule, you're going to have to expedite this portion of it. Or maybe you're going to have to send investors in your fund to different expense notices at the end of the fourth quarter of every year. That's not going to be confusing at all. It's also going to be an annoyingly meta moment when fund docs start disclosing that the advisor's expenses associated with disclosing its expenses to investors will be borne.
owned by investors in the fund. Thank you very much, SEC. Second restriction, unless you're providing notice after the fact, is reducing any advisor clawback by taxes paid. So this happens sometimes in a venture capital or private equity fund where they have a deal-by-deal waterfall. The advisor or the GP might get carried interest early if an early investment is a home run. And then the documents say, well, if if it turns out at the end of the fund's life that the advisor took more carry than it was entitled to because of the deal-by-deal nature of the waterfall, the advisor has to pay that amount back to the fund at the end of its life. That's called a clawback. Often that clawback is reduced by taxes paid by the GP, the advisor, or its related person on the amount that was taken. This is often a heavily negotiated provision in illiquid fund documents. The SEC is now saying that reducing that clawback by the taxes paid is prohibited unless you provide investors with notice after the fact. Disclosing the aggregate dollar amount of the advisor clawback both before and after any reduction for taxes paid. And it has to happen within 45 days at the end of the quarter in which the clawback occurs. Again, this is one of those things where if you're going to reduce the clawback by taxes paid, it's going to have to be in the documents in the first place. So sending folks a notice after the fact is, I'm not entirely sure what it's accomplishing. And those are the two big ones. Those are the two items that you need to send a notice after the fact. The third sub bucket in the thou shalt not category is restrictions that you cannot do unless you get consent from a majority of investors. Now you have to solicit consent from everybody. So if you have one investor who makes up a majority of the fund, you can't just send them a notice seeking their consent without sending that same notice to everybody else. So you have to solicit consent from everybody and you have to get consent from the majority and interest of fund investors before you can charge the fund for any of the advisor's regulatory examination or investigation expenses. Now, these expenses are going to overlap with regulatory compliance expenses that we talked about last time, but this is a specific subcategory of the advisor's regulatory compliance expenses. And the SEC says you need consent in each instance in which you're going to have the fund pay for that. Also, it is always prohibited to have the fund pay for it if the examination or investigation results in sanctions. Second restriction, thou shalt not borrow from the fund unless you get consent from a majority of investors. I don't really have an issue with this one. So those, real quickly, are the thou shalt not restrictions. And finally, we've got the preferential treatment rules. These ones also apply to all private fund advisors, whether registered or not. So what are the rules around preferential treatment? Well, you are prohibited, hard stop, from providing preferential withdrawal or information rights to certain investors if that preferential treatment would reasonably be expected to have a material negative effect on other investors. There are two exceptions, sort of. There's one exception for legal requirements. Sometimes investors have legal requirements to have better redemption terms, in which case you can accommodate those. And the second exception, which I think is not really an exception, is if you offer those same preferential terms to everybody in the fund. Note that you cannot condition that offer on, say, investing more money, as is often the case for better redemption terms. Now, why do I say that's not really an exception? Well, if you offer those terms to everyone in the fund, then they're not really preferential terms anymore, are they? No, they are not. But I digress. So second piece of the preferential treatment rules is that you have to disclose all preferential terms provided. Now, the way it works now is advisors might negotiate specific deals with specific investors. And while your fund documents need to disclose that you have the ability to offer specific investors better terms, you don't typically have to disclose the specific terms agreed. Well, that's changing under this new rule. So whether you're registered or not, again, if you advise a private fund, you're going to have to disclose all preferential terms provided. And there's a couple different manners in which it needs to be disclosed. To prospective investors, before they come into the fund, you have to disclose all preferred material economic arrangements to those folks before they invest in your fund. 
to existing investors, you have to disclose all preferential terms, hard stuff, not only preferential material economic terms. And the cadence of disclosure differs a little bit for illiquid versus liquid funds. So for an illiquid fund, you have to make that disclosure of all preferential terms offered as soon as reasonably practicable after the fundraising period ends. And for liquid funds, you have to make that disclosure as soon as reasonably practicable after someone invests. And then on an ongoing basis, you need to give annual disclosure to every investor in your fund if you've offered any additional preferential terms since the last notice you sent. Very confusing. All right, Dave. Well, this sounds like a lot of work to comply with, you might be thinking. So when does all of this need to be done? That is a great question. These final rules will be effective 60 days after they're published in the Federal Register. That's what they call the effective date. And then there's compliance dates. So the SEC recognizes that complying with these rules might take some time. And they're providing folks with a bit of runway. The compliance date for the quarterly statement and private fund audit rules is 18 months after the effective date. The compliance date for some of these other provisions differs depending on how large of an advisor you are. So if you manage $1.5 billion or more, the compliance date is 12 months after the effective date. And if you're managing less than $1.5 billion, then the compliance date is 18 months after the effective date. This new rule also requires all registered investment advisors to document in writing their annual compliance reviews, and that starts kind of soon. That starts 60 days after publication. There's a bit of good news for existing funds in that there are limited grandfathering or legacying provisions granted, whereby existing arrangements entered into before the compliance dates mentioned above that would otherwise violate the new preferential treatment rules or require investor consent under the restricted activities rules are grandfathered, i.e. you don't have to amend your existing fund documents to remove them. But you better remember to remove them from the next fund you launch, and you still need to comply with the disclosure pieces, even with respect to existing funds. And so that brings us to the Dave's Soapbox conclusion of today's episode. As we've discussed ad nauseum on this show before, the entire private fund regulatory regime in the United States is predicated on the fact that only sophisticated sophisticated investors who can afford to make risky investments can participate in these fund vehicles. Those investors have the experience and means to fend for themselves in negotiating advisory relationships, and therefore they don't need a heavy-handed Uncle Sam inserting itself in the relationship. A lot of this new rule seems to ignore that reality. And even after reading all 660 pages of the release, I cannot find a logical justification for that, especially because so many of these new requirements feel like busy work. Remember when you were in school and your teacher makes you do something that has no real purpose just to fill time? Like you finish your math problems early and then you have to spend the rest of the class time sharpening standby pencils for the next class? Much of this rule feels like sharpening standby pencils for no reason, especially for closed-end funds, illiquid funds. What is the point of the thou shalt not rules in that context? Your fund documents already have to permit the advisor to charge the fund for compliance expenses or to reduce clawbacks by taxes paid. Sophisticated investors engage lawyers like me to review those documents and often negotiate those very provisions. They push for a European waterfall where the advisor doesn't get any carry until it's returned the investor's capital. They specify tax rates applicable to a clawback if not. They put in expense caps, etc., etc. All of these investors know what they're getting. But now those advisors also have to send this end-of-quarter notice, breaking down these expenses into detailed buckets 
markets, which these investors can do absolutely nothing with. Illiquid funds, they can't make withdrawals. They can't just leave the fund if they don't like the magnitude of the expenses that they already agreed to. If investors wanted these detailed expense breakdowns, guess what they do? Negotiate for them. Who exactly does the SEC think is going to pay for putting these together? Like I mentioned before, it's going to be a really annoying provision to put into fund documents that fund investors have to pay the expenses related to disclosing the expenses to fund investors. And also the various pieces of this new rule don't line up. It's not enough to include the compliance expenses in your regular end of year quarterly statement sent within 90 days of year end. So you have to send two statements, compliance expenses within 45 days, all expenses within 90. The performance reporting doesn't line up with the requirements under the relatively recent marketing rule. What you're left with is various overlapping and inconsistent regulatory and reporting requirements that will just cost time and money to comply with and won't substantively benefit anyone. Well, except lawyers like me and compliance consultants into whose pockets much of those costs will end up. But honestly, I don't want them. We have enough work, thank you. Okay, rant over. Enjoy your day. Well, now that all that boring regulatory analysis is out of the way, it's time for the part you've all been waiting for. The legal disclaimer. In this show, I describe laws and regulations from a 10,000-foot view, and while this should be obvious to most, I need to say it nonetheless. This show is for informational purposes only, and nothing said here constitutes legal, investment, or tax advice. If you're thinking about starting a fund or you're curious about what's involved, this show is a good resource as you explore your options. But if you're going to pull the trigger and launch a fund, please engage an attorney to assist you. Thanks for listening to Tokens of Wisdom with Dave Rothschild. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends about us. Last but not least, if you have any questions about what we discussed today, feel free to send us an email at tow at colefreeman.com. Spelled out in the show notes. 